Section 9 of Incidents of Travel in Central America, Chiapas and Yucatan, Volume 1, by John Lloyd Steffens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. I passed two or three days more in making the clearings and preparations, and then Mr. Catherwood had occupation for at least a month. When we turned off to visit these ruins, we did not expect to find employment for more than two or three days, and I did not consider myself at liberty to remain longer. I apprehended a desperate chase after a government, and fearing that among these ruins I might wreck my own political fortunes and bring reproach upon my political friends, I thought it safer to set out in pursuit. A council was called at the base of an idol, at which Mr. C. and I were both present. It was resumed in Don Miguel's hut. The subject was discussed in all its bearings. All the excitement in the village had died away. We were alone and undisturbed. Mr. C. had under his dominion Bruno and Francisco, Don Miguel, his wife, and Bartolo. We were very reluctant to separate, but it was agreed, with no one contradicting, for me to go on to Guatemala, and for Mr. Catherwood to remain and finish his drawings. Mr. Catherwood did remain, and, after many privations and difficulties, was compelled to leave on account of illness. He returned a second time and completed them, and I give the result of the whole. At a short distance from the temple, within terraced walls, probably once connected with the main building, are the idols which give distinctive character to the ruins of Copan, and if the reader will look on the map and follow the line marked Pathway to Don Miguel's house, toward the end, on the right, he will see the place where they stand. Near as they are, the forest was so dense that one could not be seen from the other. In order to ascertain their juxtaposition, we cut vistas through the trees and took the bearings and distances, and I introduced them in the order in which they stand. The first is on the left of the pathway, at the point marked K. This statue is fallen and the face destroyed. It is twelve feet high, three feet three inches on one side, and four feet on the other. The altar is sunk in the earth, and we give no drawing of either. At a distance of two hundred feet stands the one marked S. It is eleven feet eight inches high, three feet four inches on each side, and stands with its front to the east on a pedestal six feet square, the whole resting on a circular stone foundation sixteen feet in diameter. Before it, at a distance of eight feet ten inches, is an altar, partly buried, three feet three inches above the ground, seven feet square, and standing diagonally to the idol. It is in high relief, boldly sculptured, and in a good state of preservation. The engravings which follow represent the front and back view. The front from the absence of a beard and from the dress we supposed to be the figure of a woman, and the countenance presents traits of individuality, leading to the supposition that it is a portrait. The back is a different subject. The head is in the center, with complicated ornaments over it, the face broken, the border gracefully disposed, 
and at the foot are tablets of hieroglyphics. The altar is introduced on one side, and consists of four large heads, strangely grouped together, so as not to be easily made out. It could not be introduced in its proper place without hiding the lower part of the idol. In drawing the front, Mr. Catherwood always stood between the altar and the idol. A little behind this is the monument marked T. It is one of the most beautiful in Copan, and in workmanship is equal to the finest Egyptian sculpture. Indeed, it would be impossible, with the best instruments of modern times, to cut stones more perfectly. It stands at the foot of a wall of steps, with only the head and part of the breast rising above the earth. The rest is buried, and probably as perfect as the portion which is now visible. When we first discovered it, it was buried up to the eyes. Arrested by the beauty of the sculpture, and by its solemn and mournful position, we commenced excavating. As the ground was level up to that mark, the excavation was made by loosening the earth with the machete, and scooping it out with the hands. As we proceeded, the earth formed a wall around and increased the labor. The Indians struck so carelessly with their machetes that, afraid to let them work near the stone, we cleared it with our own hands. It was impossible, however, to continue. The earth was matted together by roots which entwined and bound the monument. It required a complete throwing out of the earth for ten or twelve feet around, and without any proper instruments, and afraid of injuring the sculpture, we preferred to let it remain, to be excavated by ourselves at some future time, or by some future traveller. Whoever he may be, I almost envy him the satisfaction of doing it. The outline of the trees growing around it is given in the engraving. Toward the south, at a distance of fifty feet, is a mass of fallen sculpture, with an altar marked R on the map, and at ninety feet distance is the statue marked Q, standing with its front to the east, twelve feet high and three feet square, on an oblong pedestal seven feet in front and six feet two inches on the sides. Before it, at a distance of eight feet three inches, is an altar five feet eight inches long, three feet eight inches broad, and four feet high. The face of this idol is decidedly that of a man. The beard is of a curious fashion and joined to the mustache and hair. The ears are large, though not resembling nature. The expression is grand, the mouth partly open, and the eyeballs seem starting from the sockets. The intention of the sculptor seems to have been to excite terror. The feet are ornamented with sandals, probably of the skins of some wild animals, in the fashion of that day. The back of this monument contrasts remarkably with the horrible portrait in front, it has nothing grotesque or pertaining to the rude conceits of Indians, but is noticeable for its extreme grace and beauty. In our daily walks we often stopped to gaze at it, and the more we gazed, the more it grew upon us. Others seemed intended to inspire terror, and with their altars before them sometimes suggested the idea of a blind, bigoted, and superstitious people, and sacrifices of human victims. 
This always left a pleasing impression, and there was a higher interest, for we considered that, in its medallion tablets, the people who reared it had published a record of themselves, through which we might one day hold conference with a perished race and unveil the mystery that hung over the city. At a distance of 142 feet in a southeasterly direction is the idol marked P. It stands at the foot of a wall rising in steps to the height of 30 or 40 feet, originally much higher, but the rest fallen and in ruins. Its face is to the north, its height 11 feet 9 inches, the breadth of its sides 3 feet, and the pedestal is 7 feet square. Before it, at a distance of 12 feet, is a colossal altar. It is of good workmanship and has been painted red, though scarcely any vestige of the paint remains, and the surface is time-worn. The two engravings given opposite represent the front and back view. The former appears to represent the portrait of a king or hero, perhaps erected into a deity. It is judged to be a portrait from certain marks of individuality in the features, also observable in most of the others, and its sex is ascertained by the beard, as in the Egyptian monuments, though this has a mustache which is not found in Egyptian portraits. The back of this idol, again, presents an entirely different subject, consisting of tablets, each containing two figures oddly grouped together, ill-formed in some cases with hideous heads, while in others the natural countenance is preserved. The ornaments, diadems, and dresses are interesting, but what these personages are doing, or suffering, it is impossible to make out. This statue has suffered so much from the action of time and weather that it is not always easy to make out the characters, the light being in all cases very bad, and coming through irregular openings among the branches of trees. The stone of which all these altars and statues are made is a soft grit stone from the quarries before referred to. At the quarries we observed many blocks with hard flint stones distributed through them, which had been rejected by the workmen after they were quarried out. The back of this monument had contained two. Between the second and third tablets, the flint has been picked out, and the sculpture is blurred. The other, in the last row but one from the bottom, remains untouched. An inference from this is that the sculptor had no instruments with which he could cut so hard a stone, and consequently that iron was unknown. We had, of course, directed our searches and inquiries particularly to this point, but did not find any pieces of iron or other metal, nor could we hear of any having ever been found there. Don Miguel had a collection of chai or flint stones cut in the shape of arrowheads, which he thought, and Don Miguel was no fool, were the instruments employed. They were sufficiently hard to scratch into the stone. Perhaps by men accustomed to the use of them, the whole of these deep relief ornaments might have been scratched, but the chai stones themselves looked as if they had been cut by metal. The engraving opposite represents the altar as it stands before the last monument. 
it is seven feet square and four feet high richly sculptured on all its sides the front represents a death's head the top is sculptured and contains grooves perhaps for the passage of the blood of victims animal or human offered in sacrifice the trees in the engraving give an idea of the forest in which these monuments are buried at a distance of one hundred and twenty feet north is the monument marked o which unhappily is fallen and broken in sculpture it is the same with the beautiful half-buried monument before given and i repeat it in workmanship equal to the best remains of egyptian art the fallen part was completely bound to the earth by vines and creepers and before it could be drawn it was necessary to unlace them and tear the fibers out of the crevices the paint is very perfect and has preserved the stone which makes it more to be regretted that it is broken the altar is buried with the top barely visible which by excavating we made out to represent the back of a tortoise the next engravings exhibit the front back and one of the sides of a monument n distant twenty feet from the last it is twelve feet high four feet on one side three feet four inches on the other and stands on a pedestal seven feet square with its front to the west there is no altar visible probably it is broken and buried the front view seems a portrait probably of some deified king or hero the two ornaments at the top appear like the trunk of an elephant an animal unknown in that country the crocodile's head is seven feet from it but appears to have no connection with it this is four feet out of the ground and is given in the plate as one of the many fragments found among the ruins the back presents an entirely different subject from the front at the top is a figure sitting cross-legged almost buried under an enormous headdress and three of the compartments contain tablets of hieroglyphics not to multiply engravings i have omitted side views as they are in general less interesting this is particularly beautiful the tablets of hieroglyphics are very distinct at a distance of twenty-eight feet in the same direction is the statue marked m which is fallen and lies on its back with a tree across it nearly lengthwise leaving visible only the outline feet and sandals both of which are well sculptured the following engraving is a representation of it opposite is a circular altar with two grooves on the top three feet high and five feet six inches in diameter an engraving of which is here given the next three engravings are the front back and side view of the monument marked l distant seventy-two feet north from the last with its front toward the west twelve feet high three feet in front two feet eight inches on the side and the pedestal is six feet square before it at a distance of eleven feet is an altar very much defaced and buried in the earth the front view is a portrait the back is entirely made up of hieroglyphics and each tablet has two hieroglyphics joined together an arrangement which afterward we observed occasionally at palenque 
The side presents a single row of hieroglyphics, joined in the same manner. The tablets probably contain the history of the king or hero delineated, and the particular circumstances or actions which constituted his greatness. I have now given engravings of all of the most interesting monuments of Copan, and I repeat, they are accurate and faithful representations. I have purposely abstained from all comment. If the reader can derive from them but a small portion of the interest that we did, he will be repaid for whatever he may find unprofitable in these pages. Of the moral effect of the monuments themselves, standing as they do in the depths of a tropical forest, silent and solemn, strange in design, excellent in sculpture, rich in ornament, different from the works of any other people, their uses and purposes, their whole history so entirely unknown, with hieroglyphics explaining all, but perfectly unintelligible, I shall not pretend to convey any idea. Often the imagination was pained in gazing at them. The tone which pervades the ruins is that of deep solemnity. An imaginative mind might be infected with superstitious feelings. From constantly calling them by that name in our intercourse with the Indians, we regarded these solemn memorials as idols, deified kings and heroes, objects of adoration and ceremonial worship. We did not find on either of the monuments or sculptured fragments any delineations of human or, in fact, any other kind of sacrifice, but had no doubt that the large sculptured stone invariably found before each idol was employed as a sacrificial altar. The form of sculpture most frequently met with was a death's head, sometimes the principal ornament and sometimes only accessory whole rows of them on the outer wall, adding gloom to the mystery of the place, keeping before the eyes of the living death and the grave, presenting the idea of a holy city, the Mecca or Jerusalem of an unknown people. In regard to the age of this desolate city, I shall not at present offer any conjecture. Some idea might, perhaps, be formed from the accumulations of earth and the gigantic trees growing on the top of the ruined structures, but it would be uncertain and unsatisfactory. Nor shall I at this moment offer any conjecture in regard to the people who built it, or to the time when, or the means by which it was depopulated, and became a desolation and ruin, whether it fell by the sword, or famine, or pestilence. The trees which shroud it may have sprung from the blood of its slaughtered inhabitants. They may have perished howling with hunger, or pestilence like the cholera may have piled its streets with dead and driven forever the feeble remnants from their homes. Of which dire calamities to other cities we have authentic accounts in eras both prior and subsequent to the discovery of the country by the Spaniards. One thing, I believe, that its history is graven on its monuments. No Champollion has yet brought to them the energies of his inquiring mind. Who shall read them? Chaos of ruins! Who shall trace the void? 
or the dim fragments cast a lunar light and say here was or is where all is doubly night in conclusion i will barely remark that if this is the place referred to by the spanish historian as conquered by hernando de chaves which i almost doubt at that time its broken monuments terraces pyramidal structures portals walls and sculptured figures were entire and all were painted the spanish soldiers must have gazed at them with astonishment and wonder and it seems strange that a european army could have entered it without spreading its fame through official reports of generals and exaggerated stories of soldiers at least no european army could enter such a city now without this result following but the silence of the spaniards may be accounted for by the fact that these conquerors of america were illiterate and ignorant adventurers eager in pursuit of gold and blind to everything else or if reports were made the spanish government with a jealous policy observed down to the last moment of her dominion suppressed everything that might attract the attention of rival nations to her american possessions chapter eight separation an adventure copan river don clementino a wedding a supper a wedding ball by nemule the sierra view from the top esquipulas the cura hospitable reception church of esquipulas responsibility of the cura mountain of quetzaltepeque a narrow escape san jacinto reception by the padre a village feat an ambuscade montagua river village of san rosalie a death scene having decided that under the circumstances it was best to separate we lost no time in acting upon the conclusion i had difficulty in coming to a right understanding with my muleteer but at length a treaty was established the mules were loaded and at two o'clock i mounted mr c accompanied me to the edge of the woods where i bade him farewell and left him to difficulties worse than we had apprehended i passed through the village crossed the river and leaving the muleteer on the bank rode to the hacienda of don gregorio but i was deprived of the satisfaction which i had promised myself at parting of pouring upon him my indignation and contempt by the consideration that mr catherwood was still within the reach of his influence and even now my hand is stayed by the reflection that when mr c in great distress robbed by his servant and broken down by fever took refuge in his house the don received him as kindly as his bearish nature would permit my only comfort was in making the lordly churl foot up an account of sixpences and shillings for eggs milk meat etc to the amount of two dollars which i put into his hands i afterward learned that i had elevated myself very much in his estimation and in that of the neighborhood generally by my handsome conduct in not going off without paying my good understanding with the muleteer was of short duration at parting mr c and i had divided our stock of plates 
knives and forks, spoons, etc., and Augustin had put my share in the basket which had carried the whole, and these, being loose, made such a clattering that it frightened the mule. The beast ran away, setting us all off together with a crashing noise, till she threw herself among the bushes. We had a scene of terrible confusion, and I escaped as fast as I could from the hoarse and croaking curses of the muleteer. For some distance the road lay along the river. The Copan has no storied associations, but the Guadalquivir cannot be more beautiful. On each side were mountains, and at every turn a new view. We crossed a high range, and at four o'clock again came down upon the river, which was here the boundary line of the state of Honduras. It was broad and rapid, deep and broken by banks of sand and gravel. Fording it, I again entered the state of Guatemala. There was no village, not even a house in sight, and no difficulty about passport. Late in the afternoon, ascending a little eminence, I saw a large field with stone fences and bars and cattle yard that looked like a Westchester farm. We entered a gate and rode up through a fine park to a long, low, substantial-looking hacienda. It was the house of Don Clementino, whom I knew to be the kinsman of Don Gregorio, and the one of all others I would have avoided, but also the very one at which the muleteer had determined to contrive a halt. The family consisted of a widow with a large family of children, the principal of whom were Don Clementino, a young man of twenty-one, and a sister of about sixteen or seventeen, a beautiful fair-haired girl. Under the shed was a party of young people in holiday dresses, and five or six mules with fanciful saddles were tied to the posts of the piazza. Don Clementino was jauntily dressed in white jacket and trousers, braided and embroidered, a white cotton cap, and over it a steeple-crowned glazed hat, with a silver cord twisted round as a band, a silver ball with a sharp piece of steel as a cockade, and red and yellow stripes under the brim. He had the consequential air and feelings of a boy who had suddenly become the head of an establishment, and asked me, rather superciliously, if I had finished my visit to the idols, and then, without waiting for an answer, if I could mend an accordion, then if I could play on the guitar, then to sell him a pair of pocket pistols which had been the admiration of Don Gregorio's household, and finally, if I had anything to sell. With this young gentleman I should have been more welcome as a peddler than an ambassador from any court in Europe, though it must be admitted that I was not traveling in a very imposing way. Finding I had nothing to make a bargain for, he picked up a guitar, danced off to his own music, and sat down on the earthen floor of the piazza to play cards. Within, preparations were going on for a wedding at the house of a neighbor two leagues distant, and a little before dark the young men and girls appeared dressed for the journey. All were mounted, and for the first time I admired exceedingly the fashion of the country in riding. My admiration was called forth by the sister of Don Clementino, 
and the happy young gallant who escorted her. Both rode the same mule, and on the same saddle. She sat sidewise before him, his right arm encircled her waist. At starting, the mule was restive, and he was obliged from necessity to support her in her seat, to draw her close to himself. Her ear invited a whisper, and when she turned her face toward him, her lips almost touched his. I would have given all the honors of diplomacy for his place. Don Clementino was too much of a coxcomb to set off in this way. He had a fine mule, gaily caparisoned, swung a large basket-hilted sword through a strap in the saddle, buckled on a pair of enormous spurs, and, mounting, wound his poncho around his waist, so that the hilt of the sword appeared about six inches above it. Giving the animal a sharp thrust with his spurs, he drove her up the steps, through the piazza, and down the other side, and asked me if I wanted to buy her. I declined, and to my great satisfaction, he started to overtake the others, and left me alone with his mother, a respectable-looking, gray-haired old lady, who called together all the servants and Indian children for vesper prayers. I am sorry to say it, but for the first time I was reminded that it was Sunday. I stood in the door, and it was interesting to see them all kneeling before the figure of the Virgin. An old gray-nosed mule walked up the piazza, and, stopping by my side, put his head in the door. When, more forward than I, he walked in, gazed a moment at the figure of the Virgin, and, without disturbing anybody, walked out again. Soon after, I was called in to supper, which consisted of fried beans, fried eggs, and tortillas. The beans and eggs were served in heavy silver dishes, and the tortillas were laid in a pile by my side. There was no plate, knife, fork, or spoon. Fingers were made before forks, but bad habits make the latter, to a certain degree, necessary. Poultry, mutton, beef, and the like do not come amiss to fingers. But beans and fried eggs were puzzling. How I managed I will not publish, but from appearances afterward the old lady could not have supposed that I had been at all at a loss. I slept in an outbuilding constructed of small poles and thatched, and for the whole paid eighteen and three-quarter cents. I gave a pair of earrings to a woman whom I supposed to be a servant, but who I found was only a visitor, and who went away at the same time that I did. End of section 9